This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two-ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants, and the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety, and it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com and use promo code ZIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com, promo code ZIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside. Now this is a game-changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far. They've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
All right, we are rolling, and I'm here with Martin Ball. How's it going today, man? It's going well today. I've been uh, busy making music uh, up until getting on this with you, and so having fun. Love it. Music's the best. That's awesome. So, yeah, dude, we met recently at Entheogenesis in Austin. Yeah. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for years now. I, I discovered you first on a, a podcast about 5MEO DMT on YouTube um, that Leo Gira had hosted. Um, but then I just kept, you know, going down the rabbit hole and finding more and more Martin Ball podcasts. And I've heard some of yours, I've heard some of your guest spots, and it's just been amazing. Uh, learning about your path and, and how, you know, you've got this really amazing gift at describing the psychedelic experience and describing the God consciousness and, and, and merging with this larger, you know, what we just call, we, you know, like, I want to get into and actually ask you the question, how do we define God at a point later on? But I've just, yeah, I'm really glad to have you, man, and would love to share your story with the podcast listeners. Um, so thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. So, um, I usually like to start it by asking, did you have any spiritual upbringing or, or any spiritual, uh, inklings that you feel kind of really set the tone for your later awakening experiences? Um, and if so, what was that? Yeah, so um, I always say that I grew up in a completely secular, scientific, materialist household. Um, it did not have any kind of religious or spiritual upbringing in any way, shape, or form. Um, my dad is a—he's an organic chemist. He teaches at Chico State down in California. Definitely, he's a scientific materialist. He definitely stays away from anything that's like touchy feely, is the way he likes to put it. <clears throat> yeah. uh, excuse me, and. <clears throat> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and my mom, um, kind of following in the footsteps of her father, um, was very anti-religion. Um, mm. My dad actually had been raised Mormon, and he told me that when he was nine years old, he decided that it was all bullshit and he didn't want to be Mormon anymore. So mm -hmm. um, he comes from a Mormon family, but he decided that he didn't want anything to do with that. And uh, my grandfather on my mom's side actually was intimately uh, involved with Native American cultures and Native American religious and spiritual traditions mm. to the degree that I thought that we were Native American. And I asked my mom at one point, I was like, well, you know, what, what tribe are we? And she's like, no, we're, we're white people. And I was like, well, what about <laughs> grandpa? And so she had to explain all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And she had been a, an anthropologist anthropologist student, um, anthropology, yeah. excuse me, student at UC Berkeley. That's where my mom and my dad met. And anyway, so growing up, um, some of my earliest memories of like religion were um, some proselytizers. Maybe they were Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know what they were. They came by my house and my sister and I were playing out front and it was really quite young. And I remember my, my mom opening the door and basically slamming the door in these guys' faces. And I don't know what they said to her, but, you know, she's like, basically, go away. And yeah. then um, a second later, they had walked over to my sister and I and started talking to us. And my mom opened the door and she's like, and stay the fuck away from my kids and slam the door again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, I wasn't raised with any of that. And mm-hmm. it's something that I think was kind of a, a defining moment that I think played out later in life for me was, okay, one of the TV shows when I was a kid was Little House on the Prairie, okay? And it's, you know, mm-hmm. a very religious show. I remember it. Yeah. And there, you know, it's kind of classical, stereotypical, like kids would like get on the edge of their bed and like put their hands together and they'd pray to God at night before they went to bed. Right. And I don't know how old I was, you know, it was before my parents got divorced, which was um, right when I was like eight, nine years old. Um, so sometime in there, I got down on the side of my bed and I was like, you know, God, I just want you to know that I just, I don't believe in you and I'm just not going to have like blind faith in you. So mm-hmm. if you exist, um, you're going to have to prove it to me because, <laughs> you know, I just, otherwise I just don't believe. Um, mm-hmm. So then later, by the time I was in like sixth grade, um, I had become like a self-identified atheist. And that was primarily because, you know, the religious thought that I was exposed to was, you know, it just baffled me that um, fellow students would deny things like evolution. They, you know, they tell me like, oh, you know, the earth is only a few thousand years old. And it just really contradicted like everything that I had learned about science and evidence. Dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs. I even, you know, later I even had a girlfriend who said, um, well, you know, dinosaurs, those are just chicken bones. You can put chicken bones together any way you want. You can make anything you want out of them. And it, I feel it like just, I heard that as a kid too. Yeah, and it just really kind of boggled my mind that people would just be so narrow in their faith in some ancient book that they would just completely deny the evidence that was around them. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I was at, um, mm-hmm. growing up. And then it wasn't until, well, I do like to, to share one of the kind of epiphany moments for me was in one of my English classes in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, we started reading philosophy, yeah. you know, like the, the Greek philosophers. And I guess it had never really occurred to me before that moment, but I was like, what you can like think about stuff and that can be your job is just like thinking about like what's real and what's not real and how do we know and you know all these ontological and epistemological questions so that kind of turned me on to philosophy Mm -hmm. um and you know it was kind of curious because the ancient greek philosophers they do talk a lot about souls and god and you know the nature of uh, consciousness nature of being and then another defining moment for me and I've told this story many times. I mean, people have heard me say this, you know, if they're familiar <laughs> that, you know, this is nothing new that I'm sharing, but, um, after I graduated high school, so I had one of those teachers who was like one of the cool teachers, mm-hmm. you know, like you'd see in those John Hughes movies or something like that, like a teacher you could actually talk to and who could relate to you. Um, her name was Patricia Scully. She was both my drama teacher and my English teacher. And we just called her Scully. That was before the X-Files. Um, <laughs> And I was just cruising through campus the day after graduation and her office door was open and I just kind of swung in. It's like, hey, Scully, what's up? And she had this book on her desk and the title was Zen Mind, Beginner Mind. And she's like, oh, Martin, I think you'd really like this book. So check it out. And that was my first exposure to Buddhism. And Mm. it was kind of revelatory because in reading this book about Zen Buddhism, what I found is that it wasn't asking me to believe anything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the statements that were made in there were already in alignment with kind of how I viewed reality and consciousness in the world and found that, 
you know, it made sense. It was actually rational. It wasn't right. just, yeah, believe in some dude that died for your sins is going to open the gates of heaven to eternal life. Like, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, this was about sit down, shut up, pay attention and yeah. see what happens when you quiet your mind. Um, yep. so those and are acknowledging kinda, suffering too. Yeah. Yeah. As a first yeah. tenant, right. When I heard about Buddhism and it's like, life is suffering. I was like, Oh, it knows where I'm at. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think <laughs> at this point, you know, we understand that, but it, we, it, you and I probably understand karma and, and working through our baggage and, and getting to higher, you know, realms of thought. And, and now the suffering is probably a lot less, but I do recall that about Buddhism and, and that's just the cycle that we're in. It's not like just because you and I maybe don't feel it as much as someone else that is like maybe more disconnected from unitive states, um, you know, the, the majority of the world is really still in this suffering mindset. And that's part of the mission of the podcast is to share how people like you and I and the other guests on the show have come to this place of uh, integrating spirituality into daily life and, and understanding what psychedelic medicines are and why to use them wisely. Um, so that's a really cool primer for for you to come into psychedelic experience, I related a lot uh, to a lot of the beats of your story there. Absolutely, I remember exactly like with with philosophy being something I like had to take in college um, for the um, you know the, the the degree I was going for. I was I wasn't too excited about it, but I remember after like two or three days of like listening, I was like, you know, what? I actually like this. Like, wow, I'm starting to like school. What you know? Because previous to that, I just didn't like school. You know, like I mostly use school as just a place to hang out with friends and network and listen to music in my own headphones, you know, but that's awesome, man. So how long after these, this, you know, where you've led us up so far, um, do psychedelics come in and which ones were they? Well, you know, because I don't think you probably went straight to 5-MeO-DMT, which I know you're big no, on talking about. No. Yeah, not at all. No, I would really say that it began with cannabis. Um, so this is another set of stories that I've told many times where, you know, in high school, people experiment with drinking alcohol and was out with some friends. And I think we were drinking um, like rum and Coke, um, something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know... I got drunk, like really got drunk and, you know, had to crawl across the field following my friend to get to his car. And, you know, in that state of, I love you, man. I love you so much. And, (laughs) oh, I can't even walk. And, you know, got home and it was throwing up. And my sister got up and kind of helped me clean it all up and hide it from my parents. And after that, I, I was just like, you know, that was really, really stupid. It made me feel stupid. Um, there was nothing enlivening about that and it just feel like crap. It's like, I just don't want to do that again. And it was shortly after that, that I had my first experience with cannabis. And that was the complete opposite of like, you know what, this is really sparking my creativity. Um, I'm seeing the world in this really beautiful and shiny way. Um, mm-hmm. I'm interested in poetry and art and music and nature. And it's, and it's like flowering in all of these different areas. So you know, I became a, a cannabis proponent uh, around mm-hmm. 15 years old or so. And um, so that was my my go-to mind alterant. And, you know, I do consider cannabis to, it's not really a classic psychedelic, but it has psychedelic-like properties. Um, yep. 
So I kind of count it in there. And then it was in between my first and second year of college. So at that point, I was a philosophy major and a religious studies minor at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And um, it was actually my girlfriend at the time who kept telling me like, yeah, you know, just based on your interests, I think you'd really like psilocybin mushrooms. You really should give them a try. Um, mm -hmm. So it was in between, it was the summer in between my first and second year of college that I first got to experience some psilocybin mushrooms and then worked with them a number of times over the course of that summer and the beginning of the next school year. And mm -hmm. then kind of spilled into this, um, but I would now kind of, recognize as um an energetic reorganization um but at the time yeah. i would i described it as i'm fuck, i'm having flashbacks like i'm and not not flashbacks in the sense of like going back into a previous psychedelic event but mm -hmm. you know if i spent too much time looking at the trees i'd see all these fractals in geometry and then i'd i'd start tripping mm -hmm. and if I walked into a room that had a rug with a lot of complex geometric patterns, I'd look at the rug and then it, it would all start moving and I'd start to right. feel like I was tripping again. And um, that made me really, really nervous. And so I actually ended up going to see a cardiologist because, you know, my heart was racing. I was basically having like panic attacks around it because it just mm -hmm. felt so out of my control and um, really scared the shit out of me. And it took me quite a while just to relax with that and kind of accept like, mm -hmm. oh, it's just a shift. Like I'm going through a shift and, you know, if I just relax, it'll die away and I'll be cool. But um, at the time, it really threw me off and had stayed away yeah. from all kinds of psychedelic or any kind of mind-altering substances for quite a while right. there. I'm yeah. sure you've heard of HPPD. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like hallucinogenic persisting disorder. Just there's one other term in there, I forgot. But same thing happened here. Uh for me, it was re-sparked by cannabis. You know, I had a big mushroom experience, um, a number of them, but really that first one, and for weeks after every time I smoked weed, it was like I was back in the mushroom dimension. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was new. And we, you know, cannabis did have its already mind-altering effects but now it's getting way more mind-altering to the point that i'm like i don't know if i can smoke right now because I don't, I don't know if i'm ready to go all the way back into that dimension because before i could just kind of watch tv and listen yeah. to music and laugh and giggle and eat but now i'm like contemplating the universe you yeah. know what i mean so definitely relate to that um and it does fade over time and, and i do wonder what it is i mean it's more or less maybe just you know, the, the, the receptors are slightly more open. Uh, they'd never been open before. And now they're, they've been, you know, really opened by a big experience. And so we're able to kind of perceive that in a sober state or in another, you know, using another uh, less powerful mind altering chemical like or, or substance or uh, plant like cannabis. So that's awesome. Um, what about the psychedelics and the mushrooms were intriguing you? Like, well, what kind of spaces were you touching in and what was it helping you discover about yourself? Yeah, so from the first experience, <clears throat> it was actually at a, a music festival called Gathering of the Vibes. And I got separated from my friends before the mushrooms came on. And then they came on, I'm kind of wandering around. And it was kind of freaky because I was looking at people and I just felt like I could kind of look through them. It was like everybody was wearing a mask, but I could see through the mask. 
And I didn't want to look people in the eye because it was like too intense. It's like, my God, I'm just like looking into people and this is really weird. And yeah. then finally found my friends and, you know, there's some African high life band playing. And so I kind of relaxed into it then enjoyed like, oh, like all the instruments are breathing and look at that, you know. But from that first experience, I kind of thought, well, mushrooms are just weird. You know, it's like, I don't know if we're, I don't see what the appeal is, but that's just really strange. And right. part of it is that um, I'm not quite sure how much we had, but we split it three ways. And so it wasn't a very strong dose. And, you know, I am of the opinion that um, usually going a bit stronger is a bit easier to manage than going too light. Because if you're kind of in between and you're not really spilling over into the full psychedelic effects, then um, it can just be confusing. Whereas if you go all the way into it, paradoxically it actually starts to make more sense because you can understand yep. more of sort of the energetic space that you're in 100%. but um another experience that came up like shortly after that was uh, the same two friends and i did some mushrooms again and this mm -hmm. was back home in chico in northern california and um when the, the mushrooms were coming on uh my two friends wanted to go to 7-eleven um and I was like, I'm not getting in the car with anybody. <laughs> you, you can go to 7-Eleven if you want. And my friend was really into um, like heavy dub reggae music at that point. So he just <laughs> left me alone in his, his apartment and this really heavy dub is playing. And I'm feeling it all coming on. I was like, whoa, the, okay, this is going to be big. Yeah. And one of the things that was really curious is I was looking at just a white wall, just a plain white wall. And I started to see all these geometric designs that were essentially interlaced um, Celtic knots and like Celtic artwork and design. Mm, yeah. And that was really fascinating to me because I, it just kind of clicked like, oh, maybe this is what, you know, all these different cultures mean when they're talking about the quote unquote spirit world, that they're talking about like this kind of thing. And um, you know, maybe the, maybe the ancient Celts, maybe they were eating mushrooms because they made art that looked like all this stuff. And right. I'm seeing all this stuff like right now. I mean, it looks exactly like that and, um, kind of opened up sort of that idea that actually we're accessing, you know, like one person's interpretation might be, which is definitely not mine would be like, Oh, well you were like a Celtic shaman in a past life or something like that. And so you're like seeing that. And it's, my opinion at the time was, no, I'm just seeing the same things that they would have seen, that these are artifacts yep. of the mushroom experience. And we also see it with like Mesoamerican art. You know, that's that's a, a big theme that I visually see on mushrooms. And I think a lot of other people do as well. Same, and it's yep. not because any of us are tapping into Mesoamerican culture or spirits or the afterlife or anything like that. It's just they were eating mushrooms and creating art. And this is just what it looks like when this is your source of visual material. Um, 100%. Yeah. So kind of that idea that, oh, well, I'm actually interacting with my mind in different ways where like the little sparkle on the wall, I feel like I can talk to it, but I didn't, I didn't turn over to, well, I believe that the sparkle on the wall actually has agency and consciousness and is communicating with me, but it's actually, it's a part of myself that I've displaced to over there on the wall and now I'm interacting with it. So even at the time I didn't really, I didn't have the language for it, but I was kind of a proto non-dualist at that point, but, um, didn't have the educational background to articulate it in that way. Mm hundred -hmm. percent. Yeah, exactly the same experience here. I was seeing, 
those Central American, you know, Mayan and Aztec type patterns uh, are just on my jeans. Just, oh, there, it's right there in my hand, you know? (laughs) Wow, I've seen that before, you know? And I've had this discussion on my pod as well about how, you know, I started to speculate almost with a, you know, an agnostic tip that maybe I just saw this on Discovery Channel and maybe that's why it's there. And maybe it's not that I'm tapping into the same thing that the Mayans and the Aztecs did. But, you know, after all the experiences I've had since this point, that point and all the conversations I've had since that point, I really do think that we are touching into the collective psyche and that, you know, altered state experience that the same people have been accessing for all of time. And uh, really, it would be the most interesting thing to the point you would make the art like out of stone and carve it and create these pyramids because back then there was no Netflix and no Hulu and nothing really to do except explore these inner realms, you know, as I'm looking forward to the next mushroom journey, you know, like that was their daily life, you know, for the shaman um, and for, you know, the the people that were doing that as well, which certainly wasn't everyone. Um, But I do like to think it was more people than less people um, or at least about half, you know, like, you feel like the warriors and this seems to be true through a lot of these ancient uh, cultures, like the Vikings um, and the, uh, um, like the Bhagavad Gita and their warrior story, like coming into contact with Krishna and uh, you, you know, the the warriors from these uh, central American tribes as well um, get some type of initiation so much so that they've even put it in like in the movie Avatar. I think it was removed, but there's like on YouTube, there's like yeah. an ayahuasca initiation for these warriors, you know? Um, so I think that's been a trope um, and people have been using these medicines for a long time and reaching those realms. And it's just really affirming to hear so many other people share the same story. And uh, that's why I love about this is making a little home for people like ourselves, you know, like uh, on the podcast. Um but, so, you know, so I know I want to get in because there's a lot, a lot to go here, you know, with, with the 5-MEO and where it can go, like even so much further beyond um, these kind of even lower level visionary experiences. So um, after having and gaining your understanding of, the, of the, the base level psychedelics, how does DMT and 5-MEO DMT in these type of things start coming into your life. Yeah. So all of that was really much, much later. Um, so, you know, after having these initial mushroom experiences that at that point I started trying to find whatever literature I could about these kinds of subjects and started, you know, investigating shamanism and um, reading anthropological materials and looking at how different cultures have used these. Um, and, what came up next was um, it's actually wasn't until after graduate school. So yeah, all the way mm-hmm. through um, this whole time period of being a college student and then a graduate student, um, it's basically just cannabis and mushrooms. Those were my mm-hmm. only psychedelic experiences at all. And then it was after completing graduate school that there was a newspaper article in the LA Times. And it was about this guy, Daniel Siebert, who had this website, Sage Wisdom, where you could, you know, get this salvia divinorum thing, which I had read about, you know, learning about the Mazatec cultures in Central America. And so I just, you know, 
reading this newspaper and I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I got online and mm-hmm. sure enough, could just order it from his website. And I got some um, enhanced leaf salvia divinorum and mm-hmm. then started experimenting with that. And um, that was both reminiscent of mushrooms and also completely and totally different. And that became sort of my baseline for a very rapid, all-encompassing at the time, I called it a psychedelic tsunami. You know, you smoke this enhanced leaf sal- salvia divinorum, and within seconds, it's like this tsunami just completely overtakes you. Right. And I worked with that with for a number of years with salvia and was really quite the salvia fan, which mm-hmm. most people are not because it's a weird one. And yeah. um, so all of that was kind of in my mix. And then it wasn't until, so 2006 um, is when, I'll just, got to move some books, but I'll grab it here. Um, mm-hmm. I published this book, Mushroom Wisdom. Um, so this is a book about psilocybin mushrooms. And oh, nice. anyway, the, as the story goes, is this guy out in the desert in California is like, hey man, I, I really want a copy of your book, but I don't have any money. Can I like trade you some stuff for it? I'm like, oh, okay. So he ended up sending me some Yopo seeds and he gave me instructions oh, wow. for you know, like how to prepare the Yopo seeds. Mm-hmm. And so I always do like to mention that that was my first experience with 5-MeO-DMT is through these Yopo seeds. Right. And um, I always like to also make the distinction that my first quote unquote full experience with 5-MeO-DMT came several years later or a couple years later. It was actually in... Um, the beginning of 2008 and that was with pure free base 5-MeO DMT and mm-hmm. so I experimented some of these Yopo seeds and you know there was definitely something going on there but compared to Salvia Divinorum was not all that notable and then even uh, after I moved up here to Ashland, Oregon with the person who ended up serving me 5-MeO DMT he had invited me over to try some Bufo alvarius secretions mm-hmm. And that was also a rather small dose. So even from that, you know, my comparison to Salvia Divinorum was like, you know, (laughs) Salvia Divinorum kicks this thing's ass, man. Like that was not all that interesting compared to what Salvia does. And so then it was um, in January of 2008, that's when I got to experience what 5-MeO-DMT really, truly has the potential to do. And that was, it was just so far beyond any previous psychedelic experience I had ever had. And also presented as, this is the exact experience I've been looking for my entire life, but didn't know that that this was what I was looking for. And basically answered all my questions about the nature of being, the nature of reality, the nature of God, the nature of consciousness, the true nature of identity, how the ego functions in the human body. I mean, it just, it just laid it all out. So, you know, sometimes with um, 5-MeO-DMT, we like to talk about the ontological shock that occurs. (laughs) And I definitely went through that was like, wow, this is really it. This, this is something else. And so just became a a huge fan and proponent of 5-MeO-DMT at that point. Um, Would you, would you mind describing while we're on this first or this big release dose, uh, the sensations 
that were occurring and how long did it take to get from in your body to out there and how long were you out there before you came back and what happened out there you know yeah well okay so you know people who follow or however you want to put it my material online you know they've heard me tell this story like many times but i'll go ahead and i'll tell it again um, <laughs> so the, the 5meo was served in an argon gas vaporizer okay and it had this glass chamber that had a little piston or a little stopper up at the top and so the the chamber is filled with argon gas and the reason for that is that it's a inert noble gas and so you can heat up the 5meo dmt and it turns to vapor and none of it will burn that because mm -hmm. there's no oxygen so that you can't chemically burn mm -hmm. so this whole chamber was filled with this milky white vapor and uh, i took in the hit and i got about two-thirds of the way through the hit okay and at that point as i'm still inhaling i could tell like oh shit, this is it. <laughs> Which, you know, my prior 5-MEO experiences were not like that. I mean, this was like, oh my God. And within a matter of seconds, I thought, okay, I've really done it now because I think I'm dying. And it was, <laughs> you know, so it was this ego death experience where it just felt like everything is dissolving everything is turning into this crystalline fractal white light so visually what's opening up before me is like this mandala of white light with um rainbow refracted edges and just this perfect sense of symmetry and it's like this starlight that i described as like living starlight that was it was light that was conscious and aware and it was made out of the energy of unconditional love and so in this moment of perceiving like i'm dying and it felt like i'm going to just be absorbed into this totality and i'm never coming back and i was in a place where i just had this profound sense of yes within myself just yes let yeah let's go for it let's let it happen mm. and you know within seconds the first thing i said was just thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. And I was just in this state of gratitude and reverence, but my ego was dissolving away. So actually the, the thank you just kind of became like this mantra that I wasn't saying it to anyone. It was just wave after wave of like this ecstatic orgasmic gratitude it was just in every single molecule of my being and just this this vibration of just absolute unconditional love and yeah. it was the most beautiful complete experience i ever could have possibly had and my mind was also recognizing like oh my god this not only is this quote unquote God, this is this universal consciousness that mm -hmm. everyone and everything is actually made up of. This is the only thing that actually exists. And that means it's also me because it is me performing as this person known as Martin, who's not here anymore. And so mm -hmm. this is, I'm actually looking in a mirror that this is a self-reflective moment. And so I was that being. And I had knew that I had always been that being, but mm -hmm. as the character of Martin, I might've believed that or not believed that or thought that or not thought that. And this was just so obvious. It was just the most obvious thing 
that ever could possibly be. It's like, no, this is the nature of reality. This is what it is. There is one universal consciousness and being whose ultimate energy is the pure energy of unconditional love. And this energy then splits itself off into apparent divide of subject and object and uh, animate object and inanimate object. And the entire evolution of the universe is this energy interacting with itself in order to evolve more capable, more sentient versions of itself, like human beings, that can then interact with itself and also have a separate identity. So it was just it was just wave after wave of this. And this was maybe 10, 15 minutes completely in that absorbed state. And then there was a very distinct point where I started to notice that like the first layer of what I would identify as Martin kind of came back on. And one of the ways that that manifested is that, you know, my eyes were wide open and within (laughs) seconds, the entire room, everything had dissolved into this white light. But then eventually I noticed like, oh, there's a human form over there and there's Mm -hmm. another human form. And that's when I started to realize, oh yeah, I'm a human form too. It's like, oh, that one's male and that one's Mm -hmm. female. Oh yeah. And I'm a male. Oh yeah, and the name Martin goes with this one, and that one is Hal, and that one's Maya, and you know, so layer by layer, everything started to recoalesce, and then within about thirty to forty minutes, everything was back down to baseline, back down to zero, and I had yeah. returned from the experience and was just completely ecstatic because it was just the overwhelming impression that, like, okay, that was it. That was mm. the absolute nature of reality. And there really isn't yeah. anything to explore beyond that because there is nothing beyond that because that was mm. everything all at once. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When you have that experience, it's almost like this is why I was born. Yeah. To understand this. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, and how lucky because how many people have come and gone and never experienced it? Yeah. That's also when. I mean, pretty much from that first experience that um, I essentially became somewhat of an evangelist for 5-MeO-DMT because at the time, um, almost no one had heard of it. Um, Pretty much whenever I tried to talk about it, people would say, you mean DMT? I'm like, no, I'm not talking about DMT. I'm talking about 5-MeO-DMT. So people didn't even know what it was. They didn't know that it was different from DMT. Um, yep. and also, I get that all the time. You know, I, I'll hear people talking about like, that was a crazy DMT trip I heard about on your podcast. And I was like, no, that's 5-MeO DMT. And they're like, oh, yeah. you know, so, yeah, I know these, exactly what you mean. Yeah, these are really, really different from each other. And also at the time, um, nobody really was talking about the unitary nature of being. No one was articulating a non-dual perspective within the psychedelic space. Everybody wanted to talk about spirits and aliens and UFOs and past lives and just all of this stuff that is highly, highly dualistic. And mm-hmm. I, just coming out of this, like, it's, I think everybody's kind of missed the point that like, I don't think most people have really gotten there yet, yeah. that they don't understand that beyond all these projections of duality, there is this profound state of unitary being. So mm-hmm. I started to, you know, really try and educate people about this. And there was just so much pushback and anger. I mean, I even got emails from people saying, 
oh, you're a total fraud. You're a charlatan because you think that you think 5-MeO DMT is so powerful. And people were really leaning very heavily on Terrence McKenna at the time. And they were like, well, Terrence McKenna said it was just a feeling. And I was like, yeah, and he totally missed it. He doesn't, he doesn't even get what it really is apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was, there was a lot of resistance to that. And also just using the word God, you know, people would come back and, and, it's like, oh, you know, you're talking about Christianity or Judaism or Islam <laughs> or something. It's like, no, like that's a completely mythological notion of what God is. That I'm, I'm talking right. about something quite different. But I'm also intentionally using that word because I want to get the point across. And that's that's also the point when I nicknamed 5-MeO-DMT the God molecule because I wanted people to understand, you know, everybody mm -hmm. was calling DMT the spirit molecule, talking about all these spirits and, you know, going into the afterlife and, you know, communicating right. with all, all these spirits. And I said, okay, well, if we want to call that the spirit molecule, then we should call 5-MeO-DMT the God molecule because that kind of is a shorthand encapsulation of how much more powerful this is and what level of awareness it can take you to very, very rapidly. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I became a big proponent of 5-MeO-DMT mm -hmm. and wanting to make sure that anybody who desires that level of experience that they would get education around it and also hopefully access to it and right. try to talk about it as I think that this is our most fundamental right as a human being that we have a right to know that actually we are that thing mm. that being this yep 100% well I just want to say thank you man for not getting dissuaded by the negative emails and the people the pushback you know because it, you know it's difficult it's difficult that's not a fun time you know but at the same time you've you've really created such a body of work and shared so much knowledge that, you know, people like myself, I've heard probably 10 hours or more of your, of your stuff and I can't get enough of it. So I just want to say thank you, man, you know, um, from one psychonaut to another for, for, you know, staying true to the mission. Really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for saying so. Absolutely. So there's a number of topics I want to jump into right mm -hmm. here, but my first one is why does this toad have this medicine? Is it, you know, because my assumption is the the Sonoran, what's it called, Sonoran Desert Toad? Is that yeah, right? yeah. Is that it? More or less, is it's trying to kill an attacker. Let's call it a snake. A snake's trying to eat the toad. It explodes this venom out and pretty much knocks the snake off its feet, and it's given up now. And he's crawling out of the mouth, and he's leaving. But the snake is going to wake up too. Um, it's not dead, but he definitely thought he was. Um, is it just chance and evolution that this toxin does that? Um, you know, and, and then it's it's another crazy story. I'm sure a bunch of people are a fan of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, where he actually goes and finds out who smoked this thing first. You know, like that's a crazy story. But in in your opinion. Why do you think the toad carries this, this, this venom, this medicine, whatever it is? Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, it's just one of these freak developments in nature, I think, that uh, there's, no, there's no particular reason. I mean, it's an interesting question because um, all toads everywhere in the world, they create tryptamines 
that are secreted through their protective glands that they have on their bodies. So all toads produce various tryptamines. The primary tryptamine that every toad in the world makes is 5-HO-DMT, which is also bufotamine. And, you know, the quote-unquote higher animals that have a brain and have a nervous system, um, that tryptamines can either function as um, neurotoxins, such as bufotinine, or they can function as neurotransmitters. And Mm -hmm. so when a predator comes up to a toad and they secrete this stuff, if it gets in the mouth of the predator, then it will have a physiological and psychological effect on that predator. And it functions rather quickly. And it's also just kind of nasty tasting or, you know, so somebody bites down and I was like, "Ah," and then, oh, I'm fucking tripping. Like (laughs) toad gets away. So it's this protective thing. Um, And the, the interesting question that, you know, we can't really answer is, well, why does the Sonoran desert toad also known as the Colorado River toad. Why does only this one toad in the entire world, it also mm-hmm. produces 5-HO-DMT. It produces bufotinine. But in addition to that, it produces 5-MeO-DMT. So why this toad and no other toads? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think anybody knows. I, I do have a friend who says that he thinks it's because they spend like nine months out of the year in sort of a suspended animation um, where they're hibernating inside the the mud, um, mm-hmm. you know, or really the dried earth in, you know, Arizona and northern Mexico. And then when the monsoon rains come in in the spring, that's when they come out and, you know, start hopping around and reproducing and stuff. And he thinks that it's because they're they're hibernating for so long um, that somehow they turn either melatonin, um, which is also a tryptamine, uh, very closely related mm-hmm. to 5-MeO-DMT and DMT and all the rest of these, or perhaps converts the bufotinine into 5-MeO-DMT. But, I mean, that's just a friend who's speculating. Uh, he's not a herpetologist. He, does, he doesn't know anything about the biosynthesis you know, the biological pathways within toads or anything like that. So no one really knows why this one toad produces that. But just from an evolutionary Mm -hmm. perspective, um, it's just that the only thing that we can say is that these secretions are protective for the toad, Um, that it helps them get away from predators. But why this one produces 5-MeO-DMT, but just happens to be the most profound and powerful psychedelic molecule that exists in reality why does it make it and none others do you know who knows who knows and you know then there's people on the spiritual side of things who want to say well you know it's the spirit of the toad that wants to bring us all to a state of enlightenment and that's just the kind of stuff that is like well okay metaphysical speculation that's fine um yeah but i'm not into that myself Totally. Yeah. yeah. It definitely feels like an Easter egg. An East, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> when you when you learn about Easter eggs in films or even in video games, it's like it it's too good to be an accident. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but who knows? Who knows? You know, I, I'm I'm grateful it does and and I really do hope that uh these organizations can really help to preserve the safety of these toads because we've known through the last decade that 
the numbers dwindled for quite a while. I'm not certain where they are now, um, but I know that people have started to protect them more aggressively, which I, I am grateful for. Um, so yeah. that's, that's definitely wild. And then just the idea of thinking like who, who in their right mind would, would go and, and milk that toad and smoke it and to find out what happened. Like that just seems nuts to me. Like what, what do you know about that story? If anything? Yeah, I don't really know many of the details of that. Um, I would imagine that, uh, probably I think the name is Albert most, I think that's the name yep. on, on the, the pamphlet that was written, but I think it's the person's actual name is something else. Um, that's right. Yeah. But he I found ima- him in a later season in the he, Hamilton documentary. Yeah. So I would imagine that he probably had some knowledge of chemistry and 5-MeO-DMT had already been identified as this tryptamine um, you know, because there was a lot of research done in the earlier part of the last century um, after the discovery of mescaline and, and psilocybin that a lot of people were, and also LSD, a lot of the chemists were looking at, well, what are other potential psychedelic neurotransmitters? And it was also, it had already been identified as existing within human beings as, as well as um, DMT. And we, you know, uh, biologists learned mm-hmm. that actually all mammals contain DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. DMT. So I would guess that he had probably been exposed to this information. And then, you know, the psychedelic uh, program of the bioassay, right? So it's like, okay, well, they say Mm -hmm. that it contains this psychoactive tryptamine, but we don't know what it does because nobody's really tried it yet. So that the bioassay means I'm going to ingest it, or I'm going to smoke it or vaporize it, or, you know, I'm going to take it into my body so I can find out what it actually does. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are other cultures in the world that don't use um, toad venom, but, you know, for example, in India and Nepal, um, there are, you know, lineages of, of shamans and holy people who have used like cobra venom, you know, other things that would be identified as poisons. Then of course we have like yeah. uh, henbane, mandrake and um, nightshade, which can be poisonous and datura and brugmansia, which also can be poisonous. So human beings have kind of been experimenting with where's the line between tripping and poisoning myself um, for millennia. Sure. And so there's lots of substances that have been used um, that don't work in the classical psychedelic sense that most people are more familiar with, but that, you know, are just Mm -hmm. kind of writing that line between if you take too much, you're going to die. And if you take the right amount, you're going to have some kind of, you know, phenomenal experience. Um, Right. So, yeah, he probably just wanted to see like, okay, let's, let's give this a try. This is a tryptamine. Let's see what it does. And you know, there are other places where 5-MeO-DMT can be found in the natural world, but it's hard to get a sufficient concentration of the 5-MeO-DMT yeah. to really have a powerful experience. And so that's the, the bioavailability of 5-MeO-DMT in toad secretions is fairly high, and so it's fairly consistent. Um, and I also mm-hmm. like to point out that synthetic lab-made 5-MeO-DMT is perfectly effective. There is no need for anyone to bother the toads and to gather their secretions and use them and disrupt them in their habitat. Many people like that because it, quote-unquote, comes from nature and they they like that, that it pleases them. Mm -hmm. Um, But stuff that comes from a lab is just as effective um, 
So there, right. there are other ways to get your 5-MeO. And there are various plants that also do produce it, but that's those are tricky because um, you either have to create an extraction process um, or with like Yopo seeds, you know, you have to snort a bunch of these seeds up your nose, which for me is not particularly a pleasant experience of having a bunch of crushed seeds up my nose. Um, so Bufo right. is easier in that respect. Um, but it's not the only place you can get it. It's not the only vehicle through which 5-MeO-DMT can be uh, gathered and administered. Mm -hmm, right. And your, you know, to your knowledge, is 5-MeO possible to generate within the body endogenously? Yeah. So this is something that's been known, you know, since the 1960s or 1970s that um, all human beings have trace amounts of 5-MeO-DMT and DMT inside their bodies. Um, mm -hmm. And that it's part of our nervous system. It's in there. Um, yeah. There is various speculation about, oh, is, is it made in the pineal gland or is it made in the lungs? Um, I don't think anybody is really fully identified like where it comes from in the body. And mm -hmm. it is this open question of, are there time periods where we can produce more of it? And, you know, so yeah. there's lots of people who do like um, darkness meditation retreats and they say, oh yep. yeah, this will, this will produce DMT and 5-MeO DMT. And mm -hmm. I don't think anybody has actually scientifically investigated that, um, mm -hmm. that that's the impression that people have, but it might not be correct. Right. And I have certainly gone through many of experiences where it has felt like I have just taken a hit of 5-MeO-DMT. Right. And even when, so from that first experience in 2008, I went through this really profound process of kind of energetically recalibrating that came to a point of conclusion in the spring of 2009. And at that point, it essentially felt like I was tripping 5-MeO-DMT to one level or another for about the next three months. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. I mean, um, it's such a powerful experience and, and I've, I've had a number of tastes of it. Um, I might still not have had a full release dose, um, but I'm kind of okay with it. Cause I, I look at the psychedelic, uh, staircase, you know, one step at a time and it's going to give me what I need. Um, I've had probably three or four experiences with five MEO, but I've always been just very wary to not overdo it mm -hmm. but i definitely am getting the message you know what i mean um and the message to me feels like something that has definitely been tapped into through ancient cultures um and how they come to know these <clears throat> higher states of consciousness what is samadhi what is beyond samadhi these states of oneness states of enlightenment, states of, um, you know, Godhead realization that it's all one. Um, there's, there's plenty of stories of, you know, famous yogis or mystics who, who go off into a cave or maybe they're sitting by a river or whatever the case may be. They have this experience of, I know now that we're all God. I know now that it's all one that the the seed of consciousness within me is the same transmission from the same source as everything is receiving from the ant to you know my mom to whoever that 
you know, my enemy or whoever it might be. Um, so it makes me wonder that in, unless there was some way to access 5-MeO in the ancient culture, these people may have been inducing it endogenously. Um, and that experience may be responsible for the most widely uh, accepted wisdom traditions, you know, things like um, probably more like the Vedas than Buddhism, but still that experience of enlightenment that Buddha had was is very reminiscent of these psychedelic understandings. Um, as well, the whole uh, Sikh faith and Ekonkar, which means the, the creation and the creator are one. Um, and then yoga, you know, just general yoga, it, it's really about union, union with the divine, merging yourself, uh, merging the, the, the smaller you with the larger you. Um, all of this stuff, I don't know, I, it makes me think that 5-MeO, and if and this is not 5-MeO, it might just be an NDMT, but I don't know, after the 5-MeO experience, it, it seems to nail it home a little better. So well, yeah. what does this bring up for you? Yeah, well, there is a rather undeveloped part of religious studies that is referred to as neurotheology. And um, it's kind of looking at this question of what is going on neurologically when people have different spiritual and religious experiences. And part of that, if, if it isn't, it definitely should include this idea of when people are in deep, unitive, non-dual states, can we measure and see, does their body have a higher level or concentration of 5-MeO-DMT in them at that time? Mm -hmm. I think that if we were to look at like people who claim uh, to have lots of visionary states of consciousness, that's, that is more the descriptor of DMT, which tends to yeah. be very visual and still resides within the dualistic separation between subject and object. I am in some space seeing really weird shit. Okay, that's mm -hmm. still duality versus... I recognize myself as identical with the universal consciousness that is everyone and everything, and there is no subject and object. Mm -hmm. That is more in alignment with the 5-MeO-DMT experience. And we, as we do know, as we've already covered, that human bodies, and actually all mammals, do produce these molecules. But it is a question mm -hmm. of, is there a correlation between these deep spiritual experiences or religious experiences that people are having, and there's an addition of production of that within the body? Like, when I went through that time period of, like, tripping 5-MeO for, like, three months, from my own subjective experience, I could taste it in my mouth um, my wife said that my sweat smelled like 5-MeO-DMT. I mean, it certainly seemed like my body was producing an excess of it at the time. Now, I didn't do a blood draw. I didn't have anybody like analyze my plasma or anything. Um, but I think it's a very interesting question that, you know, all living beings are basically chemical factories that we go through these different catalytic processes of producing different chemicals and the human body can take a base tryptamine and can turn it into serotonin, it can turn it into melatonin, it can turn it into DMT, it can turn it into 5-MeO-DMT. So we have the, the biological uh, hardware in order to mm -hmm. do this. And um, I think it's a very interesting question to look at how the human body might be producing this stuff and correlating with these experiences. And also, it's very important to recognize that you know, so I was a religious studies graduate student. And back then, uh, there wasn't 
any class that covered like entheogens and religious experience. Um, mm -hmm. Entheogens only came up a couple different times in um, some of my classes, but it wasn't something that was really addressed. But, you know, that was back in the late 90s, early and late 90s is when I was um, a graduate student. And at this point, we now have pretty conclusive evidence from around the world that most of these religious traditions that actually people were doing all of this stuff that... Um, you know, in Buddhism and in Hinduism, there's Amrita and Soma, yep. um, which is undoubtedly some kind of psychedelic mix. Um, yeah. It's been used in Jainism. Um, we can see it in Zoroastrian religion. We can see it in Judaism. There's been aspects in, within Christianity and mm -hmm. also within Islam. Um, you know, so all of these religious traditions that claim all of these powerful religious experiences, actually, they've been using psychedelics for a long time, but it's all been super top secret that this is the kind of stuff that you had to be initiated into in order to have that shared. Um, also in ancient Greek culture, I mean, like Greek philosophy starts to make a lot more sense if you <laughs> understand that most likely they were tripping. So when, you know, yep. they're talking about the platonic forms and, you know, these um, complex geometries out of which the shapes of the physical world emanate, it's like, well, they were tripping. You know, like they, mm. they were seeing this stuff. Right. Um, so it, it's really embedded within the human experience that we've been using these things for as long as we've been exploring what it means to be human and articulating that. And kind of going back to something that you said before, that I think a lot of particularly the sacred architecture from around the world, it comes out of things that people have seen in their visionary experiences. And they're like, well, I'm going to build that thing because that was right. really cool. And mm -hmm. so that's where that's why we get to quote unquote see sacred architecture on psychedelics is because that's where the blueprints come from in the first place and then also the art and the music and the mythology it all originates in these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um so people have been at this for a very very long time we just haven't been really aware that that's where all of this stuff is actually originating and coming from. Mhm. Mm yeah, I agree. This is just pure speculation, but I do almost feel like <clears throat> it's possible that some animals that have since become extinct or even plants that have gone, you know, missing off the face of the planet uh, may have been around back then and had 5-MeO. Maybe there was a, a, a certain plant or a certain snake or a certain other toad that produced that. Um, of course, you know, pure speculation, but I, I like to put it out there. Maybe someone else can look pretty deep into it. Um, if they, if they hear the podcast and like that idea. Um, but you know, that, that only makes sense because it's probably not the deserts, you know, uh, Soren desert toad, you know, they didn't come all the, the Vedas didn't yeah. travel over to Colorado to get their medicine, you know? Um, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that there's anything there or could, could there be extinct plants or animals that could have carried that and they would have had access to it? Um, you know, I would say that's within the realm of potential, but, you know, possibly way back in time. Um, you know, a, a lot of plants that produce DMT also do produce 5-MeO-DMT. It's just usually in lesser concentrations. Um, mm -hmm. And I think something that is particularly special about, um, well, both, 
Greek culture and also um, Indian culture is that the philosophers and the mystics and, you know, the holy people, they were interested in the question of what lies beyond the form and the appearance mm-hmm. of subject and object. So they had a, a, essentially a non-dual focus that was already there. And, you know, I do like to say that like 99% of all psychedelic experiences are still residing within the realm of duality of me mm-hmm. and not me me and what I'm seeing or what I'm experiencing. But, you know, we can see that there are time periods within people's dualistic psychedelic experiences where they do occasionally spill over into a non-dual experience. It's a bit rare. It does tend to be rather brief, you know? So somebody might say, like, I had a six-hour mushroom journey and there was like 30 seconds in there was like, oh my God, it's the totality. Like, this is it. This is is the reality beyond subject and object. Um, So it's not like 5-MeO-DMT is the only catalyst Mm -hmm. that spills over into the non-dual experience. It's just much more effective and much more likely for it to happen through the vehicle of 5-MeO-DMT. But it is possible through these other psychedelic states to reach Mm -hmm. into that. And so I think that it's important that these ancient traditions, they weren't just getting stuck in the spirit model of, okay, well, there's all these spirits and entities and all these different realms, but they kept pushing the question, like, what's beyond that? What's beyond Mm. that? And that's where the non-dual unitive experience lies. Um, And this is is where we do see a bit of a difference in more traditional, like, shamanic cultures, where they're living in relationship with their local ecology and their local plants and animals, and also then in the visionary realm with spirits and entities, that the shamanic model still is mostly rather dualistic. That it says, okay, there's good spirits and there's bad spirits. There's friendly ones, there's unfriendly ones. There's good energies and there's bad energies. And it's all about reciprocity, exchange, and relationship. And I think that that was very effective for a lot of these cultures. Um, but I think that they didn't necessarily push into, well, what's beyond all of that? Because it, this is the thing, is that from an evolutionary perspective, it's not really functional. It doesn't really contribute to the well-being of the local tribe. Because sure. at the well-being of the local tribe, you do want to know where can we find the right animals? Where can we find the right plants? What do we need to eat? What can we, what can we use as medicine? Versus mm-hmm. in these cultures that developed you know, beyond just the tribal stage, and they're now into complex societies that uh, have complex economic, social, and political, and religious systems, that they're kind of pushing into, okay, well, what's beyond everything? What is, the, what is the nature of the absolute? And so I think the focus was a little bit different. And therefore, this is one of the things about these experiences, that if, if you're not really committed to, I want to get to the truth of being, mm-hmm. you generally won't get there. Or if you do get there, it'll be brief and you might not recognize it for what it is. So there is kind of this idea of this commitment to the absolute nature of being that you'll be more likely to discover it if you have that commitment. And, and this is not a criticism or judgment of shamanic cultures. I'm just saying that from a functional standpoint, that it, that wasn't really an effective question for them. And also, a lot of these cultures that did go into the non-dual, um, they, they're developed 
to a degree where someone can spend their life meditating and contemplating this and society doesn't collapse. But if you live in a small scale tribal culture, if like Joe is just sitting off to the side and meditating all the time, it's like, I'm to discover the secrets to the true nature of being. Everyone else is like, dude, we've got hunting to do. We've got some fishing to do. We've got to gather some medicines. We've got to make, um, the, uh, the community uh, house so we can have our ceremonies. In other words, you've got to be contributing to the day-to-day survival of an indigenous culture, a tribal culture. Whereas in these larger scale societies, there's the luxury of having people who can just meditate for 50 years and then say, ah, I found it. I found the answer. Um, And so it's just not really functional from that standpoint. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, That does lead me to the idea that, you know, what is the link with these non-dual states and 5-MeO with the psyche, um, with synchronicity, and also with time? Because in these states, it can almost be like we can see the future or we get a sense that the future has already been written and we're just like backwards in time on a record player that has already like the full record's already been written. We're just in the groove over here right now, but the whole thing's there. You know what I mean? Like it's really hard to put into words, but, uh, synchronicities seem to be where you're almost like feeling into, uh, a place that you, you're supposed to be. And you almost knew you would be, you just didn't know how to say it. And you arrive at a place and you'll be like, it would be like this this would be the result of all of those past experiences. Um, We could even call it destiny, you know, like were you destined to have that 5-MeO-DMT trip? Um, And when you get to these states, they're they're so ineffable, they're so beyond comprehension and, and time as well. It's almost like you step beyond the dimensions of space and time and you can look back at them. I'm very curious, what do you think about the relation to 5-MeO, the the psyche, uh, maybe our own individual journey, but also like just space and time and and has it all happened and are we just in this matrix right now, you know? Yeah, well, it's always important to recognize that when we're dealing with that state of awareness in and of itself, it's only something that can be experienced directly. And that everything that we ever might say of it or try and articulate about it is still happening within the realm of duality, that every word implies both a speaker and a hearer. So every word we say is trapped within duality. And also every word is related to either sense impressions or concepts or ideas. And so words that we use are ways that we divide the experience of reality into subjects and objects and verbs and ideas. Um, And the value of having the direct experience is that when you're there, it just presents as the suchness of being. Mm -hmm. And so it's immediately and intuitively recognized in that moment. But then there's always a transition into that and there's a transition out of that. And the ego can be very active at both of those stages. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? How do I make sense of this? Like, how do I talk about this? Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, this sense of totality where there is no subject and object, it's just the suchness of being that in that moment, there's only awe. Mm -hmm. But then as we come down, I was like, well, how do I talk about that? And mm -hmm. how do I make sense of it? How do I communicate it? And so then people might say, well, yeah, it's, it felt like I could see the future. And then I've, you know, plenty of other people have told me that they feel like they see all possible permutations of the past. And mm -hmm. you get this opportunity where you look at it and you see like everything in my past um, actually brought me to the point where I am now. And so there is that sense of destiny, like, oh, I've been brought to this. But then yeah. you can also look and see that, well, look, any moment, if you really look honestly at any moment, you realize, oh yeah, obviously everything that ever happened before brought me to this moment right now. But this moment is just like really, really mundane. So I'm not thinking of it that way versus mm -hmm. the moment where you're in the the depth of the 5-MeO experience is anything but mundane. It's extraordinary. Right. And so it feels as, you know, this profound um, cosmic religious revelation in that moment. And mm -hmm. we, you know, it's even the thing with synchronicities that we tend to think about things that we notice that we think are meaningful and we don't, we don't register the things that, we don't mark out as meaningful or significant. You know, like one of the things that has been very curious in the past 20 years or so, I'm, I'm old enough that I lived back in a time when clocks had hands on them. Mm -hmm. And fucking nobody played, in my opinion, the stupid magic time game. Nobody ever did that. Nobody said, oh, it's one eleven right now. Whoa, it's like the angel time. Or it's 11, 11, and 11 seconds. Like, whoa. It's like, look, analog clocks have been replaced by digital clocks. And you don't even think about sure. it when you look at the clock and it says, oh, it's 219. You're like, oh, who cares about 219? But if it's like 222, it's like, oh, whoa. It's like, <laughs> oh, that means something. Right. And this is the thing is that the ego... And that this is functional. I mean, this works well, but the ego is a meaning addict. The ego mm -hmm. wants everything to mean something. It is very satisfying to the ego when shit means something. And so all meaning is essentially invented by the human ego. Mm -hmm. I mean, animals don't go around asking like, oh, it's 11-11, what does that mean? It's like, it, that's totally irrelevant. <laughs> you know, the animals are thinking food, water, sex, shelter. Hmm? Hmm? Mm -hmm. Um, but human beings are constantly taking the input of their experience and then trying to organize it into meaningful uh, events and meaningful stories and narratives. Um, so that's just where, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I like to say, look, it's all just a big game. Okay. God is playing a game with itself. Because on the other hand, see, the human ego is a meeting addict, but God, as this unitary consciousness that doesn't have anything else to do, is kind of an experience addict in the sense that, look, I'm just going to incarnate myself into billions of beings all at once and have them all interact with each other. And some of it's going to be great and some of it's going to be like really terrible and lots of suffering and pain and anguish. Um, but that one being is kind of a uh, is an experience addict that all space and time is the construct that is necessary in order for this being to have an experience of not being itself so that it can mm -hmm. forget who it is and like really invest in the story of its individuated existence. Mm -hmm. So we've got this constant input of experience that's happening. 
um, which happens whether or not we are aware of it, because that is the nature of reality, is this ongoing experience. And then we have this meaning addict that rides on top of that, that's trying to always make meaning and understand everything. And it's a, it's a big satisfaction for the human ego to think that it really understands something because then it feels like it has some form of control over it. And so, yeah, when, you know, honestly, when people talk about destiny or meaning or purpose, that's where I like to just take a step back and just say, Mm -hmm. you know, let's stick with what we really know. What we really know Mm -hmm. is this is my experience right now. The meaning I make of it is probably a story that I'm telling myself. And so how do I just be present with myself Mm -hmm. and live in a way that's authentic and genuine that for me that that's where i like to steer people back Mm -hmm. towards Mm -hmm. but you know certainly i've been there i've had like whoa this is the most meaningful thing that's ever happened to me and it seems like my whole life is actually guiding me towards this moment um and that's what a lot of people say about 5meo but you know Mm -hmm. i always could have chosen not to take the hit Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't think it was like destined that I, I do believe that we as individual agents do have um, a modicum of free will that I don't yeah. think that everything is set in stone um, sure. in that sense. Right. <clears throat> so it's a debate just a little bit. I, I wanted to say that, you know, if it is an ego m- doing that meaning making, would we call it the spiritual ego? Because we know that the majority of the humans out there aren't seeing synchronicity. They don't even know what that word means. To people like you and I who have been in the spiritual path for years, we were oversaturated. We're like, ah, everyone's talking about it, you know? But like to most people, they don't, they've never really tied in with what synchronicity is. So to, to me, it feels like a path that I'm uncovering that isn't so clear that I have to work to understand what it means. It isn't just, there I go again, making a big deal out of nothing, you know? It, it's like, wow, so I really dug deep, and, I, and something was revealed. And that something that was revealed resonates on a soul level, more than just like the mat mind. It's like, I couldn't have even asked for this. It's a gift. It's a gift from the divine, a gift from God. What does that bring up for you? Yeah, well, that's the nature of existence, that every moment is a gift from God. Every occurrence is a gift from God. And, you know, again, that we as individuated versions of this universal being, that we do tend to parcel things out into what I like versus what I don't like, what I want versus what I don't want. So when something good comes our way, we're like, oh, wow, I've been gifted. Um, But we're just as much gifted when something bad comes our way. It's like, Mm -hmm. because we go back to the experience addict side. It's like, yeah, but this is experience, right? So Mm -hmm. the the nature of experience is the gift itself that without these embodied vehicles to walk around in, there's no interface to have experience that we need these bodies to have this experience. And that comes with stuff that we would decide is good and stuff that we would decide is bad stuff that we would decide is meaningless and random and stuff that we would decide is very meaningful and significant. And I always mm-hmm. do like to remind people that I just, I tell them like, look, all of reality is one being interacting with itself. So mm-hmm. of course, weird, uncanny stuff is going to happen. It's like, whoa, how could that even be? Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's just the way it is, but I don't want to make too much meaning out of it. So I'll give you an example. 
And I've, I talked about this in a, a previous talk that I gave somewhere. So maybe people have heard this before. But anyway, this was a couple years ago. I had just completed working on my album, Temples of Light. And um, what I was, my plan for that evening was I'm going to take some MDMA. I'm going to listen to my new album on my headphones. I'm just going to go through it a couple times and just really vibe mm -hmm. in and see how I feel about it. Sounds like a great night. Yeah. And the, the very <laughs> last song... Um, would not properly bounce. So I work on Mac. It wouldn't bounce down properly from Logic into iTunes and mm -hmm. then magically transfer over to my phone. Um, mm -hmm. It just it would not get off my computer. And so I even tried like uploading the song to like Google Drive and Dropbox and then re-downloading it and see if it would you know automatically populate and it wouldn't work. And I tried uploading it to my Bandcamp page and then downloading it. and all of that worked and I could play it on the computer, but it mm -hmm. would not properly transfer to any of my other devices. And my plan had been to get my headphones on and lie down in bed and have this experience. So what I instead opted for was just playing it on the computer and lying down in my living room and mm. or in my office and listening to it that way anyway i'm listening to this album having a great time and i listened to it three times and then on the third time through I, on that last song there was something that had been bugging me about it but i hadn't really figured it out yet but on the last time i was listening to it and I was listening to that last song, and the last song on the album has this little piano riff that the song is built around. And what mm -hmm. occurred to me is that on the last note of that piano riff, I hit the key too hard. And it's like, <laughs> that note yep. is too loud. The velocity is high, yeah. Yeah. And when I realized that, it was like this complete epiphany because I was like, fuck, that's it. If mm -hmm. I change that note the song is going to work. It's going to bounce down. It's going to show up on my phone that somehow right. the song is resisting because the song knows that it's not right. right you know, right. which is a weird way to think. But at the time it's like, this is, this is it. And I was also like mm -hmm. cracking up because I was like, this is too fucking weird. If this is really the problem, this is mm -hmm. too funny. This is really, really funny. Right. And by God, but I was convinced like, okay, this is going to do it. So I get in, I open up logic. I find the note. I take the slider, take the velocity down from hundred to 80. I bounce yep. the song down instantly. It shows up on my phone. <laughs> exactly. And I've had a hundred of those, yeah. you know? So that's like a weird experience. Like technologically speaking, that should not have made any kind of difference whatsoever. Right. But for some reason it did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say. And, yeah. you know, I could look for investing a lot of meaning into it or whatever, but that's where I just like to, I like the story and just like, yeah, this is one of the freaky things that has happened to me. Like this weird, tiny detail that somehow made all the difference. Um, and then when, when I caught it, it's like, I knew what the outcome was going to be. I knew this was going to mm -hmm. work, but beyond that, it's just like, yeah, reality has made up a bunch of stuff like that. So you can look for that, enjoy it when you catch it, but everything actually, every moment is an opportunity to realize like, oh, it's actually all just me. And I don't mean the egoic individuated person. I mean, mm -hmm. the unitary consciousness that we are, it's like kind of, it's being revealed in every single moment and it's just up to us to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And then you see it everywhere and it's just, it's obvious right. like, oh, that's how it works. Okay. 
Totally. I love that. Great story. I love that story. And again, yeah, I've had a, you know, a number of experiences like that where it's just like, how did I get this intuition that then solved the problem? And that thing didn't want to happen that way. It wanted to happen another way. It wanted to be improved. Yeah. Um, getting some crazy light right now, but it's all right. Um, so the last part of this before we move into integration, because I think that's a big part of this, I, I definitely want to want to tap into is just, do you believe in the concept of karma? Okay. Um, <laughs> Short answer. No, not even okay. close because karma, first of all, this is a word that's been adopted into Western culture and um, it's just been kind of uncritically adopted this idea of karma. But if we go into Indian culture, we actually find that not only does every re different religion in India have a definition, different definition for karma and what it is and where it comes from and how it works, but even the sub traditions within all those different religious traditions. So there's actually many different versions of karma. It's not even one singular concept in Indian culture. So it's kind of vague to ask, like, what do you believe in it? Because it has to like, well, are you talking about like Hinayana Buddhist karma? Are you talking about Mahayana Buddhist karma? Are you talking about Advaita Vedanta? Are you talking yeah. about, um, are, are you talking about the Krishna version of karma? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, which version are you talking about? And mm -hmm. what, is similar with all of them is that karma is understood as what results in you being reborn into another life. Mm -hmm. And this also is terribly problematic because from a genuine non-dual perspective, the whole concept of individuated reincarnation makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, the whole notion that there are souls actually also makes no sense. And this is a place where I feel that Buddhism has actually really failed because Buddhism rejected the notion of a soul. But I think that the concept of reincarnation and karma was so intimately ingrained into the presuppositions of the Indian worldview that even though the Buddha taught souls don't exist, they're not real, that the concepts of reincarnation and karma have been reinforced within Buddhism, even though it like logically does not make any sense at all. Like even, even right here, I've got, um, this book from my friend, Mike Crowley, psychedelic Buddhism, and he's a Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And even in the book, he writes that the biggest problem with the Buddhist concept of karma and reincarnation is that they believe in it mm -hmm. because it actually doesn't make any sense. So karma Again, there's so many different definitions of what karma is and how it's accumulated and what it does, and then what happens. Also, all these different religions from India, they have completely different stories about what happens when you get rid of karma. So they have mm -hmm. completely different endings to the story. It's like, choose your own adventure. Um, yeah. But if we just settle with the basic idea that karma is what drives the process of reincarnation. I have thoroughly rejected the notion of reincarnation at an individual level. That mm -hmm. Here my catchphrase is, the only one who reincarnates is God. And God mm -hmm. is already everyone and everything right now and is every being that ever was and is every being that, that ever will be. Mm -hmm. And that's me and it's you. 
that Mm -hmm. we're all, in that sense, we're all reincarnating all the time, that there's no part of Martin or whatever makes Martin Martin, that doesn't reincarnate. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing that's held over from one life to the next. There's nothing fueling this metaphysical speculative process that takes place. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm pretty firm on that, that no, I don't believe in karma. Um, Okay. Well, I don't know if maybe my term is is being defined differently, but uh, for example, there's you know a big internet there's big internet memes about like instant karma where someone does a bad thing and then they get taken out. You know what I mean? It's like instant karma. Yeah, it's like, which is a Western reinterpretation of the word karma, which has nothing whatsoever to do with where the concept originates from. Karma okay. does not ever impact your current life. Karma is what determines the conditions of your next birth. That's what karma does. So, okay. Well, in this example, like you, in in that example of karma, you would have had a good last life to the point that that you were born as Martin. Yeah. And you are going to have an elevated life where you're going to merge with God now. Yeah. Because you've earned it. Yeah. And you've done a lot of good work yeah. uh, over the past reincarnations. I think that's the thing, personally. Um, maybe I'm still in the lower levels of consciousness. I'm not sure. But <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I feel like, w- why are you so lucky? Why would you have that experience? You know, because again, as I said at the beginning, how many millions of people have been born and died and never once merged with God? Yeah. Other than maybe during death. Yeah. You know, but, but. Okay. The best and only explanation that I can give for it at at the quote-unquote cosmic level would be, look, it's kind of like asking, why did lightning strike over here and not over here? And the answer is, well, actually, there's these little tendrils of energy that reach up from the Earth, and that's Mm -hmm. where lightning connects, and wherever that connection is strongest, that's where the lightning strikes. And Mm -hmm. so my personality structure was such that I was one of those tendrils that was reaching out. Mm. And it just so happened that it came at just the right time in my life where I was able to say, yes, Mm -hmm. let's do it. So in that sense, it's just got lucky. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean like I've been prepping for this for, you know, countless lifetimes or anything like that. It's like, look, it's just, I had the right personality structure and had the right sense of uh, trust and um, surrender in the moment that I was able to have this experience and let it completely reorganize my sense of self and reality. And Mm -hmm. so I was just a prime candidate. That's all that it is. And it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's not because I'm a better person than anybody else. It's not because I was chosen. It's not because it was my destiny. It's like, I was just a good candidate. And Mm -hmm. I got lucky. And that's why I do like to say that those kinds of experiences on 5-MeO-DMT, it's an experience of grace. It's like the best definition that I could give for it. It's like, you got lucky. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean anything beyond the fact that you're at the right place in the right time with the right vehicle, and it happened. And Mm -hmm. that for other people, it might not happen. And, um, you know, that's, that's just what it comes down to. 
So well, I'll just say that I saw this just yesterday. It's just an internet meme. I'm not trying to mark it all up to this big, perfect answer. But the, the internet meme said, it's never luck. It's always God. Well, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it was, so is bad luck, you know? So is good luck. I mean, everything. That's the thing, is that everything is God all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. I think we hit that pretty good. Thank you for going back and forth with me on that. Yeah. Um, before we run out of time, we've had these experiences. We realize it's all one. We realize there is something so much greater. You know, what do we do with that? You know, a lot of people I know, they have a tough time integrating it. You know, they have these reactivations where they can't sleep at night. And yeah. um, it's almost like, oh, this is, uh, this is too much. This is too much for me. Like, I can't even integrate it. Like, I almost wish it didn't happen. Some people, yeah. a lot of people are like so grateful, you know, Um but in, you know, I know you've probably talked about this a bunch, but how would you sum up that? Like, what do we do with this energy now that we know? Yeah. So yeah, we don't have time to really get into all of it. Cause I, I do have to run shortly to go pick up my son from school, but the, yeah. the short yeah. answer is okay. So that if you, if you had the full experience, you have now had the most intense experience of the true energy of being that you could ever have. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now you know what truth feels like. Okay. Now Mm -hmm. as an individuated personal expression of that energy, your job is now to pay attention to when am I being authentic and truthful with my energy? And when am I indulging? When am I deceiving? When am I lying to myself? When am I projecting? When am I being attached? When am I trying to make something into something else versus just being present with how I genuinely am and allowing myself to embody and express that? So I do say that the ultimate integration is to learn how to just be authentically who and what you are. You are God embodied as a human being, and that that being is a being of energy. Everything that we would ever experience is a form of energy. But so often we have an energy that says, oh, I want to do that. And then another part of it says, oh, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that or don't say it that way or, um, you know, do, do it like this and then other people will like you more or put it that way and you'll be more accepted. And so there's all mm-hmm. different kinds of ways that we edit ourselves, we censor ourselves, and then we also pick that up from society. It says, no, don't be that way, be this way. Um, you know, we go against our natural inclinations of who we are as energetic beings, and it's all inhibited by the self-concept that we've generated, which is a collection of patterns of energy that regulate how we interpret and express our experience, and we call that the ego, and we've become mm-hmm. identified with it. And so the ego itself becomes a form of prison that we trap ourselves in. And by completely going beyond the ego and seeing our unlimited, liberated potential, then it's about how do I embody that more fully as the limited individual that I am in the little tiny window that I have that is my life and in the little tiny areas that I have that I can express myself and allow myself to be, that it ultimately comes down to we and we alone are responsible for our own liberated being and our own liberated life. You know, God's not going to do it for us. Buddha's not going to do it for us. Jesus isn't going to do it for us. 
Donald fucking Trump isn't going to do it for us. Nobody's going to do it for us. If we want to be liberated and be authentic in our being, it's up to us. And the power of 5-MeO-DMT is that it gives you the opportunity to go through what I call the energetic recalibration process. And so it's not about singular events. It's not about, wow, I had that big event. Like, what do I do with that now? It's like, well, actually, let's see where you can be more authentic in your life. Let's see if you can find that place of pure, unconditional love for yourself and turn it on yourself and then also turn it outside because the self actually is both of these things. And then learn to live from that place, to love and accept yourself for who you are and give yourself permission to be who and what you are as you are, free from any concept of what you think you should be or have to be or ought to be for either yourself or for God or for Jesus or for your political party or for anyone or anything else. It is a place of radical liberation done by the self for the self. And that integration process is complex and that really to advise people, it does take getting to know their life story of what has impacted them, where have they made choices about who they are and what they feel they deserve and, and uh, how they embody their ability to express themselves and love themselves. And mm -hmm. then looking at what actually energetically showed up for them within their experience. Did they barf all over themselves? Did they scream and yell? Did they try and run away? Did they contort themselves into a pretzel? Did they do handstands and flips? Did they mm -hmm. vibrate in orgasmic ecstasy for 20 minutes? Um, mm -hmm. Did they look around the room? Did they clench their hands? Did they open their hands? You know, there's so many different ways of helping people to get an accurate look of where they are at energetically and then help them mm -hmm. find a place of more authentic embodiment and expression but it's very individuated that you have to really just work at one person at a time and i definitely don't take a cookie cutter cookie cookie cutter approach to it totally makes a lot of sense man definitely appreciate it love that and i really love just your note about self-love you know i think that's been one of the biggest learning experiences for myself with with psychedelics is being able to see myself as a being worthy of my own love too. You yeah. know what I mean? Because we always have to feel like we have to win something. We have to achieve something. We have to be greater to, to earn that self-respect, that right. self-love, but it's all, it should always be there. And the more you practice it, the more those other things will come. I think, I think personally. Yeah. And really I'll just end with this and I do got to run cause I got to go get yeah. my boy. But the key is the self-love is actually effortless when you find it because that is the genuine energy of being that any attempt to love yourself is like you trying. And the, the mm -hmm. less we try, the more we just relax into what is and we find, oh, well, that's just the way everything is actually that that self-love, that's what actually exists. That's yeah. why all of this grand theater takes place. This is all an expression of self-love because the only one God has to do it for is itself. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that is the most fundamental energy of being. And it's effortless because that's just what exists. Mm. So I like to try and help people find that within themselves. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been an honor having you today, man. Um, that's Martin Ball, guys. Go check out his work. I'm going to link to his stuff down below in the bio. And yeah, it was an honor talking, man. And uh, I hope to speak again. Um, great meeting you. And thanks again for your time today. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>